Welcome to the Front End Nerdery Podcast. I'm Todd Libby, your host, and I am excited to bring you, the listener, the first of hopefully many podcasts to come. Speaking with people in tech about front end development and design and other design and development topics as well. Today, for the first episode, I wanted to have my first guest be that not only one who I am honored to have with me today, but who has been one of many who has shaped the course of my career with one book, which we will get into shortly. I have with me, uh, among other titles, speaker, conference co-founder and co-host, designer, author, and publisher. I am thrilled and honored to introduce the godfather of web standards, Jeffrey Zeldman. Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Todd. How are you? I am doing fine. How about you? And I'm, I'm the I'm the bystander. Well, I'm not bystander, but I feel like web standards uh, was like a a car accident I was driving by. <laughs> so I like nobody. There were much more qualified people, but nobody was getting out of their car to help. So I I had to do it. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty cool. It's really nice to be here on the inaugural podcast of Designer uh, and Front End Nerdery. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? First, I want to hear from you one quick question. Sure. How did you come up with the name? It just, <laughs> it was the first thought in my head when it came to a title, and I said, well, I'll instead of pondering too much and overthinking it i'll run with it so you trusted your instinct yes cool yeah yeah, yeah. we so, don't always get to do enough of that no no we don't and it's actually people that like the title actually so i gotta stick with it now it's very nice yeah i totally agree <laughs> thank you plus uh you're kind of the perfect representative of your title. <laughs> yeah, I am. There you are with this good mic, good headphones, in a kitchen, sitting at a laptop, yeah. taking a break. Uh, yeah. It's fun. It's fun to see you. And uh, I'm really glad you're doing this. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you so... You had a question for me that I completely bypassed. <laughs> yes. Could you, tell, <laughs> could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm a very old man who failed in a bunch of careers before I got onto the web in 1995. And I was fortunate enough to be working at an ad agency at the time with two much smarter people, Alec Pollock and, and Stephen Sharon. We were... Uh, we had a really good client in Warner Brothers, and they were they were releasing the third uh, of the third Tim Burton produced movie, a Batman movie. Um, but this one was directed by Joel Schumacher. It was called uh, Batman Forever. Do you remember this? I do remember the website. Yes. And uh, do you remember the movie? I do. I do remember the movie too. Yeah. Yep. So so. Don Buckley, our client, was smart enough to know the web was going to be a big deal. I certainly didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. And he asked our agency president, uh, folks do websites? And the agency president lied and said yes. And then he, the agency president came to 
us and said, can you fellas make a website? And we lied and said yes. And that was my first website. And I had so much fun. It was so mind-blowing. And it felt so empowering that I knew that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. And after failing at a bunch of other stuff, I really had like these abortive careers in uh, journalism, music, uh, things I wanted to do, like art, filmmaking, like every creative kid thinks they're going to be Martin Scorsese or whoever, you know, where they think they're going to be the who or wh whatever, whatever fantasies that you have. Um, the most of us don't get to do. Uh, but this hit all the sweet spots. I was, I was writing, I was coding, and I was designing, and I was playing with pick and it was all these limitations which went really well for me because i didn't have formal design training but you couldn't really do that much in the early web so my ignorance and that of my teammates who were uh they were more skilled than me but none of us were skilled in web design nobody knew what it was so we just we did a bunch of things wrong like we made a website that only worked in netscape 1.1 <laughs> you know, all the things that I would hate today, yeah. we did. Yeah. We did a website that before you got to any information, it started with this mysterious, well, there wasn't Flash yet, but we we had a little animated intro. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I guess, and I can end here, the next thing I, I knew I wanted to do was uh, do this full time. And the next thing I knew I wanted to do was make a website for me, yeah. not for a client. And it so I did, I started a website and it had entertainments and experimental art and stuff, but it also had uh, something called Ask Dr. Web, which I was basically giving my uninformed, poorly poor understanding of how the web worked and how you could do art direction on the web and all these things. And uh, there were so, there was so little web content at the time that, it, you know, if you had a half-baked idea, you could get a lot of followers. Yeah. So I was very fortunate with that. And then I started a list apart uh, with um, uh, Brian. Oh gosh, I want to say Brian Alvey, but that's wrong. I'm really sorry, Brian. Wrong, Brian. I'm, I'm blanking on Brian's last name. I suck. I apologize for that. But we started it as a mailing list, and it was a, we curated it. I, I really liked developer mailing lists mm -hmm. was learning a lot on them but there was also a lot of flaming just bad internet behavior yeah so i said wouldn't it be great if we could remove the bad behavior but keep the content and brian reached out to me and said well i've got a you know i've got a mail system mailchimp didn't exist things like that didn't exist so mm -hmm. you had to be a developer and he said i built a mail system and i'd, I'd be interested in partnering with you so we did that mm -hmm. and after a year uh, I turned it into a website and gradually the mailing list kind of went away for various reasons, but the, uh, but the, uh, magazine survived and, and a whole bunch of stuff has arisen from that, including the web standards project, an event apart conference, a book apart publishing over the years, a bunch of stuff has arisen from that, but, uh, it's just, you know, community. And I was part of a lot of community started by other people too, from K10K to Dreamless to pretty much you name it. Uh, and those were fun times on the web. They were, yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, so with the Designing with Web Standards book, which I'm going to hold up here because this is the book that changed the course of what I was doing and for the audio listeners i'm holding up jeffrey's first edition uh book designing with web standards i went into a bookstore in northern new hampshire in oh geez it was a long time ago long time ago <laughs> and i've always been the one that bright colors have always seemed to catch my eye uh very quickly and i saw that book and i sat down in the store and i read the intro i read i 
pretty sure the first chapter and instantly bought the book, brought it home. Uh, it was one of the first books along with Jen Robbins uh, web design in a nutshell, is it? Yeah. And uh, Eric Meyer's first CSS book. Uh, and I mean, there was a slew of others, you know, Dan Cederholm's uh, uh, book and the stuff from. Yeah, about a year after the first edition of Designing with Web Standards, there was this wave of web standards themed publications by, oh, well, Molly Holslog had been really writing about web standards from the beginning too. Yes. Uh, but she collaborated with Dave Shea on this mm -hmm. great book, and with Andy Clark on a great book, and Dan Cedarholm. There were lots of uh, really fantastic things came out then. Many, yes. Uh, so what was the impetus behind writing your book? Yeah, I didn't think it should be written. I didn't think it needed to be written because mm -hmm. I'm, an idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm so obsessed with whatever I'm doing that I think everybody's doing it. You ever have that feeling? Yes. <laughs> so yeah. from almost the beginning, a list of parts started in 1998 and the Web Standards Project started like two months later. Um, and there were a bunch of developers on this list. George Olson wrote this letter, like maybe we should do something. And Steve Champion was on that list. Dory Smith was on that list. Jeff Veen, um, and uh, the guy Glenn Davis, who ran Cool, who had done Cool Site of the Day and was mm -hmm. now doing Project Cool. And we just we kept talking about it. This was when Netscape four and was it Netscape 3 and IE3? I think Netscape 3 and IE3. And they had, you know, Netscape had JScript and, uh, sorry, Netscape had JavaScript and the Windows browser had uh, JScript, which was a reverse engineered version of JavaScript, but had some different syntax and they supported CSS. In, in per, well, Netscape didn't support it at all, the first edition. And the second, I, it was it was when the 4.0 browsers came out. That's when we started. It was the height of the browser wars. Mm -hmm. And while most people thought of this as just like a software problem, like, gee, which software will be more popular? And probably the one that was free. Yeah. Right? Microsoft was giving theirs away. Netscape, their business was selling browsers. Yeah. And so their business, you know, they couldn't give them away free. They couldn't compete. And Microsoft was saying, hey, if you buy a Windows computer, we'll, you know, as long as you pre-install IE and don't install Netscape, we'll let you have the operating system for like pennies on the dollar. And so every Dell and every manufacturer was kind of put in a position where they had to but release IE. And so IE had one set of standards and Netscape had another. And then there was this third set that were actual standards that were being set by the W3C and Opera supported them. And in America, nobody was using an op using Opera, but in Europe they were. And uh, early mobile browsers were also using Opera. Um, and, you know, by the 4.0 versions, Internet Explorer had a more robust, incorrect, but robust implementation of CSS. Their implementation was incompatible with Netscape. So even their box model was incompatible. You couldn't really do layouts yet. We were still in those early days doing table layouts with CSS for typography and color, um, which kind of defeats the purpose of CSS. It, it allows you to not have to name the font family, uh, you know, every time you declare a paragraph, yep. right? But uh, it wasn't, the browsers weren't good enough yet to really support CSS layout. And in fact, CSS hadn't been designed with layout in mind. It was really a document structuring language. So you could do layout, but nobody really knew how that should work. Eric Meyer did. Yeah. Uh, he, he made these uh, tests with W3C. I don't know whether they commissioned him or he volunteered. I don't know how, yeah. you know, I've known Eric for 20 years and I've never asked him. <laughs> 
and I'm just like, how incurious are, am I that I wouldn't ask this guy I talk to every week? Yeah. By the way, but anyway, <laughs> but we started we started the Web Standards Project because the browsers were incompatible, and we knew that the next version was going to come out because that's how software works, and that would be incompatible again. And soon we were going to be doing four and five versions of a website just to handle all the browsers. And a lot of developers liked this because it was a way of charging. They got to charge a lot of money for their expertise. Oh, I can't just make you a website. I'm going to have to make you four websites <laughs> all with the same content. But yeah. so we had to develop arguments to get designers and developers on our side and agencies on our side because you know we weren't saying you can charge your clients less. We, we were, you could. Mm if you only had to make it one way, but also if your client has a million dollars to spend, not that I ever worked on a million dollar website or, but, but if your client had a million dollars to spend, maybe they could spend it on, you know, three quarters of the budget on typography, uh, I'm, you know, on using, well, they couldn't use fonts yet. Maybe they could spend that money on photography, mm -hmm. on editorial, on hiring writers to keep the content up to date. Like there are lots of things you could spend a client's money on if they had a budget as corporations, you know, yeah. anyway, so, so I didn't think I needed to write a book because by 2000, the web standards project was ready to prematurely declare victory. Mm -hmm. You know, the browsers were, the browser makers had all signed on to attempt to support CSS correctly, support HTML and JavaScript correctly. Um, and in a list apart in the early 2000s, people like Dan Sierhome and Dave Shea and lots of other really creative people were writing these articles were like, so here's how to make a background that, you know, here's how to make a full screen background, even though CSS doesn't allow for it, or here's how to do multiple columns. I, I worked with Tondik Jellick to replicate the dumb, ugly layout, my, my dumb, ugly layout of a list apart, which I'd done in tables where it was easy and we spent like a week making it work in CSS. And that's when Tontic invented the box model hack, like lots of stuff happened. But I thought all that was very visible. We had a lot of readers on a list apart. Mm -hmm. Seemed like everyone who was in the industry was reading it. So I thought everybody knows this, we don't have to do this. And this guy, Michael Nolan, this really brilliant acquisitions editor from Peach Pit, who worked on the new riders imprint, which was the imprint that it, they had published um, Linda Weinman and David Siegel's first web design books, which were the first web design books I just loved and absorbed. And, and I'd written one book for new, new writers a few years earlier called Taking Your Talent to the Web. The problem was it came out during the dot-com crash. So it was a book that told art directors how to leave print and get into the wonderful field of <laughs> internet design but then the internet was like eating its own hat so mm -hmm. can we swear on this podcast sure it was eating its own balls so that yeah. makes me feel better <laughs> so so nobody wanted to buy like nobody wanted to buy a book about how to get into a field that was dying yeah um but after you know a few years later that stabilized uh the economy after 9 11 stabilized a little bit blogging sort of picked up where a lot of other stuff had left off. Mm -hmm. So now there were all these new people and Michael Nolan said, you really should write a book about web standards. I said, everybody knows I don't need to write that book. They've already said they haven't. Yeah. And then I talked to a Carl Malamud, who is this brilliant thinker who was already like he, he and his partner at the time ran the internet world's fair. Okay. Yep. And Carl Malamud, uh, I said, I don't want to, I mean, everyone's re read my stuff. He said, no, they haven't. I said, well, half the book will consist of like minor edits to things I've already written. He said, that's fine. I said, but people will go, hey, you're cheating. You already wrote that. He said, no, they won't. He's like, he basically schooled me in humility. Right. You think everyone reads every one of your precious <laughs> words or they remember that memorable turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. I've read that, heard that before. And he said, no, nobody cares. Just write the best book you can. So I did. And it was a huge, 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 huge 
for for books about web development, it was a huge hit, which uh, is weird because I never had a hit. I was in. I mean, I was in. I did all kinds of things that were never hits. Hmm. The idea that you could actually have an effect on many people was not something. I, and the idea that you needed to write a book to do it, that just blogging wasn't enough. All this was all new information to me. Mm -hmm. I trusted Michael Nolan. He was right. At one point, I wanted to call the book um, Forward Compatibility. Because okay. the reason a lot of people wouldn't adopt web standards, they said, but what about backward compatibility? Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, but what about forward compatibility? What about the future? Yeah. Right? It's kind of like the future friendly meet thing that came later. It's the same idea. Like, yeah. what if we could make something so it won't break a year from now? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, no, we don't. I agree. We don't want to break our old websites and we don't want, we want people with an old browser to be able to get our content. I agree. But if we're worried about pixel for pixel rendering, we're going to be stuck doing table layouts and all this other garbage forever. And if we are actually concerned about making a much more robust web, where the kinds of sites that we can make, we can't even imagine right now, folks, and things besides desktop browsers can access them. Well, that's all in these web standards that these brilliant people at the W3C and, uh, and other standards bodies have figured out. And why don't and I, I think I was sort of a translator in my book. I, I didn't invent CSS. Yeah. I didn't, and I wasn't the, the brilliant person who thought of like, you know, that was Tontic who thought of the, uh, the box model hack to, to be able to make a layout that would work in older versions of IE, which had a box model that wasn't the way it was intended, mm -hmm. and Netscape, which was supporting the box model correctly. When I say that correctly, I have to add that the correct support of the box model was actually dumb as hell because the actual box model was like, you had to, the amount of mental arithmetic and things you couldn't do because of that mental arithmetic and things like you couldn't make something the width of the screen, but then subtract a percentage or uh, subtract a number of pixels from it, or you couldn't have one thing be of a fixed width and the other be of a floating width because there were all these complications that yeah. just, because, and that wasn't the fault of the geniuses that came up with CSS, like, like Hokum Lee and Bert Bose, because at the time they weren't layout artists, they were scientists and nobody came to them and said, you know, a multi-column layout, like on a, like on a, and, and if someone had, they would have said on what, on this tiny screen, because everyone had little screens that were low res. So they weren't dumb, they were geniuses, mm -hmm. but screens were getting bigger. Everything was happening really fast. And we wanted to do certain things that were very hard to do in CSS. But I mean, I had to sort of glide over. This is hard. It's an adjustment. You're going to have to be tricky because I didn't like that part. We, I wanted to get, but, but to me, there was two things we needed to sell. We needed to sell developers on supporting these standards fully and correctly mm -hmm. before they implemented new features, cool new features. Yeah. I remember getting really angry at IE in IE5 when they had colored scroll bars and there was nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Giving a vendor the, you know, the opportunity if your UPS and your slogan is what has Brown done for you lately or what can Brown do for you today and you have a Brown website and you want the scroll bars to be Brown, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. First get CSS right. right. Like, that's all we were saying. But so, so the book was there to catch folks up with the struggle that we'd already done mm -hmm. and what was left to do and to also help designers get with the program and give folks ammunition to take to their bosses because, you know, if you just said, hey, we'd like to use CSS for the layout because it has, it, you have to say, it will, it will mean that when we have to redesign next year, we don't have to rebuild everything from scratch and we can actually store all our content in a database where, you know, as, as content marked up as content mm -hmm. instead of storing it as these weird, meaningless chunks. Right. Um, so the impetus to write the book was to get 
browser makers to solidify their support for it, but mainly to get designers psyched about it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I wanted to call it forward compatibility because I had my head so far up my ass uh, that I thought everyone was with me, mm -hmm. was already thinking, yeah, but what about forward? Nobody was. And Michael Nolan again said, just get design in the title and get web standards in the title. Like, that's what you're talking about. And I said, man, that's so boring. He was brilliant. Like, that's basically SEO for books. Mm -hmm. yeah. Be clear and plain in your title so that people who might be interested in that title understand what the book's about, as opposed to act like you're Marcel Proust or, and you know, an English class will decipher your meaning someday. Here the poet hid their meaning behind clever veils of imagery. No, it's not 19th century poetry, it's mass. So I was lucky and I had Steve Champion as a technical editor and I was very lucky. Our relationship was cantankerous because every time I exaggerated or simplified, he would come back to me like, no, that's not how it works. And I'd go, well, I know, but I don't want to complicate the argument. And, I, and he'd say, well, then I guess you want to lie. And I, then we'd have a fight, but then I end up figuring out how to say what he was saying without confusing the reader or getting into too much of a tangent, being able to go, there's more to it. And you can find out here about that, but I'm going to use this simple analogy. Like an, I, I had a, a really great team and the cover, um, Michael Nolan hired some really brilliant graphic designers who came up with conceptual covers that I hated. Uh, even though their work was beautiful and I admired them, um, one of the best, one of my design heroes did some of the covers and they were like gorgeous. I said, they're gorgeous, but they don't seem, you could almost change the title and make it about something else. And I would still buy that book because it was beautiful cover, but the cover isn't communicating. And in the end, I went with my ego. Jeffine had a book with a, his face on the cover mm -hmm. and um, the flash guy who became a movie guy and I'm blanking his name because I'm old and it sucks. I suck with names now. Oh yeah. I you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, beautiful. He, he died very young. He died at 50. Mm. Colon cancer. I will eventually think of his name because I'll just keep thinking. I feel really bad. He was a wonderful guy. I, mm -hmm. I was fortunate I got to know him. Um, he was a really, really strong designer and a lovely human being. Um, and I, but he had his picture on the cover and I was like, eh, but we're not going to get a concept. Just put my picture on the cover. And then we, I had this low res picture I'd taken of myself wearing a blue beanie like this mm -hmm. when I had the flu and I looked really sick and terrible but I'd used it as a model to make this little animated gif at the bottom of my website and I thought people who like my website know this little character in the beanie is me yes they know that his face slides up from the bottom of the website yeah. so let's cut the let's cut the picture off right at the nose mm -hmm. so you can't see the full face yeah and New Riders was like, this is such a low res picture. We can't use it to print. And I said, let's pixelate it. Mm -hmm. because that will say web. Pixels say web. So we did it. I pixelated it for them. But they thought what I had done was a rough demo. And they handed it to a much more experienced book designer who then made what was arguably a you know better quality image, but also looked like Hitler rising from his grave. Because <laughs> I can't believe anybody bought a copy of that book because it was this unknown weird creepy man me like with this weird it was like jewish hitler uh or like kilroy yeah like, you know like what and pixelated and and somehow their pixelation brought out the, the red in my eyes from the flu mm -hmm. as opposed to making me look more like a pixelated character which was what i had anyway well, you know, the nice thing about my talking so long about that question is you don't have to ask me any more questions. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the, the cover is actually I, 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 you know, along with bright colors being something that catch my eye, you know, interesting covers to books catch my eye as well. And that was also one of the reasons I said, now this guy, he looks interesting. 
uh, never did I did it cross my mind uh, the, the the sickly part, but uh, yeah, and I I mean like like I said before, the, the, that book changed the what I had planned to do was just you know skate along in life and and you know just be content wherever I was, but I said well you know I'm gonna give this stuff a try, and then I bought html books and and when we used to have magazines that used to have uh code samples and, and yeah. tutorials and stuff uh you know um i i bought it, it yeah and and i ran with it and it you know it it afforded me a very good career so you know cool i could never thank you enough if, especially for writing the book because it was like, you know, there is a rhyme and a reason to doing this and doing it right. And oh, I started, you know, I, I, this was my Bible for a while. And when I used to go into old chat rooms or BBS, you know, uh, bulletin boards, uh, I was, you know, a member of some uh, communities um, online. And I'm like, you know, this this is the Bible, and and you know, preach preaching the gospel, I guess you could say. So, with we just celebrated Blue Beanie Day on November 30th, right? A couple and, of days before recording this. Yes, and so I from the Wikipedia page, you know, in November 2007, yourself, uh, Douglas Voss. And yourself started Blue Beanie Day. Douglas Voss, again, I've just been really, if I have any skill, it's being a, around talented people, mm -hmm. attracting smart people, mm -hmm. people that are smarter than me, more talented than me. That's my skill. Yeah. Like a magnet for that. And so um, before I go, and, and that was Douglas Voss, and he came to me and said, this could be a holiday. And I thought it was ridiculous and nobody would do it, but he convinced me and he was right and it was really cool and he was very smart um guy from detroit area i don't know if he still lives there but he was from detroit at the time um and my daughter's mom my ex-wife was from detroit and we were had been had recently visited detroit and it just seemed like kismet uh by the way before we go further i want to thank you for all that evangelizing that you did um oh you're welcome the the book wouldn't have had any effect if it was limited to the i don't know the first few thousand people that bought it mm. it's that other people took it and took it back to work or took it to the chat rooms or took it to that's i mean that's the web standards movement it's it's mm. a movement it's not me and i want to thank you for being part of that and i want to thank you for being I mean, I see you on Twitter every day. You're a very enthusiastic uh, and giving, generous member of the web design community. And I want to thank you for that. That's a real service. Well, thank you. You said you, you at one point, were thinking of just drifting along in life. And we all go through periods like that. But mm -hmm. you clearly, you do not just drift along. You uh, touch people. And you uh, have a lot of friends in the industry and you know a lot of people and you share a lot of information so i want to thank you for that well i appreciate that thank you that that means sure. a lot um so as with you i speak to a lot of younger designers and developers uh and why staying on blue beanie day why do you think well do you think web standards are important today and and why i do although it's less and less acknowledged mm -hmm. what do they say in spinal tap their appeal is becoming more selective yes i mean it's gone from like arenas to tom waits to dude in a coffee shop with a couple of people who come here and play but uh I think there's a lot of real web standards made possible all the revolutionary ideas that are happening on the internet now 
in turn, as the industry scaled and it took 10 engineers to make something where it used to take one, um, a lot of new technology to make it easier for developers came along and a lot of, you know, from platforms to languages and it's gotten very complex. And I think if you were new, so there's several things. If you were new and you saw what you have to learn to be like a React professional or something, I think it could daunt you and keep you from entering the business altogether. We're lucky that when we started, there were like 12 HTML tags and that was about it. And plus Netscape had a a couple of extra ones you could use to stick an image on there. And so it was really easy to learn mm -hmm. and easy to start playing when we had constraints. And it was like learning to play a three string guitar, right? Yeah. And you've got a two track studio. You're not gonna do an orchestra. You're gonna do like some kind of very simple, direct music, folk music, punk music, whatever. You're gonna do something very simple and direct. It doesn't require great expertise but you do that and you build on it. And then eventually, because you have that expertise, you layer in more and more expertise. But for kids now, for people's changing, kids of, people of any age changing to this career now, it's a lot more complicated and daunting. Another, so I like the idea that if you learn the basics, don't be scared by all the tools you don't know how to use and all the platforms that other people are using, just learn the basics of semantic markup and CSS and just enough JavaScript to be dangerous. And you can make pretty much anything and you'll have a future in the, in the industry. So that's yeah. one thing for people. Another reason web standards are important, inclusive design, design that uh, works for people regardless of what device they're using, regardless of their abilities, accessible design, much easier to do if you start with semantic markup, like no matter how many layers you eventually add in progressively, that will enable someone with a super duper browser and a super duper phone or whatever to, to experience a super duper, wow, these sheets really slide around when I do this. But if at the bottom, someone else can go, I, I don't get sheets, but I still have a checkbox. I can still participate. Yeah. As long as people can still participate, I think if you do it with web standards, if you build with web standards first and you build with simple markup first, and you've seen, I know Jeremy Keith talk about this. Yes. He's a masterful speaker on this topic, but yes. yep. if you start with these basics, then it's easier to make an accessible site, an inclusive site. If you start with these principles in mind and you keep use web standards as the basis, then if you start with a very sophisticated platform and then later have to try to retrofit. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can start with a tw twin engine plane and put seats in it and gradually work your way up to a big plane with seats in it. Or you can have a, uh, an air force fighter, plane come at you and try to put seats in that plane as it's flying overhead and that will be much more difficult retrofitting inclusive design just like retrofitting retrofitting a uh, an inclusive user experience is much harder if you first use a bunch of tools um if the tools ultimately output standards compliant web code and and most of them do then if you know what you're doing, there's no harm done, but I still think it's best to start with HTML and CSS and prototype from there. Then maybe you turn it over to an engineer who uses the fancy platform that enables everything to jiggle around while it's doing this stuff. But, but you can keep testing and you can keep having people with disabilities or test it. You can have people with old phones come and test it. Um, I think web standards are what makes all of this possible and standards compliant, yeah. standard like accessible, inclusive design, super important. Blue Beanie today to me nowadays isn't, gee, browsers should support CSS. Well, they do, mm -hmm. they do. And they're, you know, they may, 
they may compete on who launches which which new CSS faster or who comes up with an experimental thing like Grid, as Microsoft did, that eventually becomes a standard. Um, but there's this basis that's forward compatible and backward compatible. You can go to the oldest web page made in HTML uh, in the newest browser, and it still renders like it's supposed to. And you can uh, make something now that will work 100 years from now. Mm -hmm. HTML, I've often said, is the cockroach that will survive the nuclear winter. Yeah. It's so basic that you can add more things to it. And if a browser doesn't know what those things mean, it'll skip them. Mm -hmm. It's very robust. It's very, it accepts what it understands and it ignores what it doesn't understand, which is why we can be backward compatible and forward compatible. And it's harder to do that if you say, I'm gonna use this tool that does everything in JavaScript. And if you don't have JavaScript, you can't see this page. I've, I've experienced platforms where if the user didn't have JavaScript turned on, they couldn't look at a page, even though there was no other JavaScript. There was no JavaScript in the page, but JavaScript was used to render the page. And so, like I've made accessible pages, very accessible pages that were like entry level accessibility where anyone with a, a cheap phone could use it to do everything that that page offered. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't because the IT department built it on, I hate to get, Ektron, let's say, at the time, right? Ektron at that time. I, I, haven't, I have no idea if Ektron's still that way. I think like WordPress uses React, mm. but it renders HTML and CSS that are accessible and compliant, and it doesn't it doesn't alter the HTML and CSS. Right, it's a platform, but it doesn't alter that stuff. So you design in HTML and CSS, you test and prototype in HTML and CSS. You may then replicate what you've done using the native tools of Gutenberg, but mm. When it renders, it renders as standards compliant, accessible HTML and CSS. So there are some accessibility issues still in the admin part of the tool. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of what it inputs and outputs, not at all. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, I think they're hugely important. I, I'm sad that I'm proud and happy when I see people wearing that blue beanie or talking about web standards and accessibility. But I'm sad when so many folks in our industry don't seem to care about that. I, I feel like that's that's baseline. That's one on one. Yeah. yeah. Be able to do that stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. I tell that to uh, you know the the younger people that I talk to in different communities that you know web standards is definitely the probably the best place to start out with the learning the fundamentals of html and css like you said so i know that you have a hard stop and i have hard stop okay uh so Perhaps hopefully we can do it again sometime i would love to do another another part to this episode uh because i have a <laughs> i have a I have a few more questions. So I want to try and get this one question in because I definitely wanted to talk about this. Uh, an event apart, you co-founded with Eric Meyer back in 2006. Uh, my first one was in 2008 in Boston. I remember, I remember meeting you then. Yeah, it was quite the, quite the memorable meeting. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, another time too. Yes. Um, can you let the listeners know the reason behind starting the conference and what what makes it unique? Thank you. That's a lovely question. Well, event apart is you know three days of holistic web design, web stand, web standards, accessibility content strategy, some development, some, some user experience design, a little topography, um, a lot of best practices and some new things. Uh, and event apart is where Ethan Marcotte premiered um, responsive web design, for example. Uh, in, C in Seattle. In Seattle, that's yes. right, just standing on the stage. 
Yes. That's another story we'll save to it for another time. But <laughs> why did we start it? Eric and I kept finding ourselves on similar talk circuits. I had no I, intention of becoming a speaker, mm -hmm. but I felt like web standards needed a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And since I was passionate about it, might as well be me. Um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't uncomfortable in front of people because I was a ham and I'd done like, I'd played in rock bands in my twenties and I'd been uh, in advertising and made presentations to clients. So I wasn't afraid of getting up on stage and making a fool of myself. Mm -hmm. So um, Eric, I became a speaker and Eric became a speaker and we would often end up like speaking at universities or we'd see each other at South by Southwest every year mm -hmm. and we became friends. And every year at South by Southwest, we would meet at this little place doesn't exist anymore. Um, a little Mexican restaurant that was wonderful. We'd sit in the, there, they had this enclosed backyard. We'd sit there and have our burrito breakfasts and talk about the conference that we were And South by Southwest was an amazing conference. Uh, I'm sure it still is. I haven't been in a while, but, but at, at the time it was just the knee plus ultra, but there were so many tracks, we inevitably missed people we wanted to see. And at other conferences, we felt that, I mean, there were some that were very instructive, like um, the way Jim Hyde ran the Thunder Lizard conferences was really effective. There were other conferences where there'd be a few speakers we thought were really good, and then some other speakers would contradict them, and the speakers weren't listening to each other, and weren't, there wasn't an overall, there wasn't an overarching narrative to the day. Mm -hmm. And he and I would say, you know, we ought to do this ourselves. We ought to put on a show, the kind of show we'd want to see. We ought to just like, so we, we prototyped it. We actually did our first show in Philadelphia in 2005, Christmas time, in a tiny little, um, in a little room in the back of the, uh, a museum, right? The, uh, the guy who discovered, who had the kite, this is terrible. Ben Franklin, the Benjamin Franklin Museum. Yeah, that's how I do it now. It's like breadcrumbs. I, <laughs> I like, okay, electricity kites. Oh yeah, yeah, Ben Franklin. Yeah. Uh, so we did it in the Ben Franklin Institute. A friend brought his sound system. It was really, you know. And then eventually we hooked up with Marcy Eversoll and mm -hmm. um, Toby Molina, who produced and managed the bejesus out of it to make it a professional thing. But it was originally a community thing that we just put on, like, let's put on a show in the old movies, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to make a single track where when you went out in the hall, you weren't like, what did you think about what she said? Oh, I didn't hear her. What did you think about what he said? Oh, I didn't hear him. We wanted it to be, you'd go out in the hall and go, what do we think about what we just heard? Mm -hmm. Do we agree? Um, so a single track was a must. Um, we wanted there to be a real emphasis on front end web standards. In, uh, we weren't calling it inclusiveness then, but you know, accessibility um, and a bigger picture. And we wanted it to be a sort of a representative group. You know, at first it was just a bunch of guys because it seemed like everybody I knew in the field was was some guy that looked like me. Mm -hmm. But eventually. Uh, and it continues to become a more and more diverse yes. group yes. of people. But yep. um, yeah, we just wanted to, we wanted to put something on that we thought would add value to the web that would help people who want to do the right thing, who were inspired by the books you mentioned, you know, Eric's book, Dan Cedar Holmes book, um, the Molly Holschlag's book, whatever, mm -hmm. um, and wanted to know what comes next. That was great, but you know yeah. the last, the most recent edition of that book was in two thousand nine. So what comes next? Right. Uh, and we wanted to have a holistic experience. We wanted. Uh, it's funny. I'm on a team now at Automatic that tries to make sure that designers at Automatic have a great experience, because if a designer feels supported, they'll design a better product. Yeah. If the designer feels unhappy and unsupported, they're going to be. Uh, less likely to care about what the customer thinks. And we have a really good 
it's a really good place for designers to work, but we can always make it even better. So that's what we're, right. I'm on a team that's trying to make it even better because, mm -hmm. so this was the same thing. Let's have, if you're going to make a great user experience, come to a conference that's a great user experience. Yeah. You know, so we talk to all the speakers beforehand, help them figure out what they're going to talk about, curate the days so that there's a rhythm to them um, and all that. It's, you know, Right now we're doing it digital only because pandemic. Yeah, but that's we seem to be getting the kinks out of that too. So I'm really sorry I have to go. I'm really honored to have been. That's fine. Your first guest, Todd. Well, I am honored that you joined me, and I would love to, you know, uh, have a second part to this and keep, you know, we certainly will. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll. I'll close it right here. Um, I want to thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us for this first part. We'll coordinate to get to uh, do a second part as well. And thank you listeners for tuning into the Front End Nerdery podcast. Uh, we'll be back, you know, as soon as t schedules permit to continue this conversation. And as uh, far as the podcast goes, if you would please rate this podcast on your podcast device of choice. I'm Todd Libby, and this has been the Front End Nerdery Podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.